I remember the first time I heard this story, I was in children's church. I don't know why I remember that, but I distinctly, it's one of those memories that just gets stuck in your mind. And reading the story, I remember sitting there in that little room at uh, First Baptist Church of Grand Bay. And I don't remember anything that was said about the story, but I do remember being interested in the story. And uh, I don't know if I would uh, uh, understand it to the depth I uh, understand it now or be able to apply it like I apply it now. Uh, but hopefully we can learn some things from this that will be of benefit to our souls. Certainly we can because it is God's word. Last week we saw that Abraham had three visitors come to his tent by the Oaks of Mamre where he was encamped. And it was the Lord and two of his angels and they came to once again deliver the covenant promises to Abraham and particularly to Sarah because she had not seen the two appearances uh, that God had made to Abraham before where God had told Abraham that he would indeed have uh, uh, land and offspring and he would become a great nation and the nations would be blessed through him. So we saw last week that that visit, this visit that is going on here by the Oaks of Mamre are uh, really for the benefit of Sarah. Well, in today's passage, we find another purpose for the visit of the Lord and his angels, and that is a more sober reason, and that that's reason being to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the Jordan Valley. Well, in our study, we've already encountered uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and the cities of the Jordan Valley on more than one occasion. When Abraham and Lot separate in Genesis chapter 13, Lot chooses to live in the Jordan Valley near where Sodom is, and he ends up eventually, as we'll find out in a couple of weeks, that that's where he ends up living, right in the city of Sodom. Genesis 13 tells us, as they survey the land, he and Abraham, and Abraham said, pick, pick which side you want. And it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Zoar is, the land, is the, one of the cities that's there in the Jordan Valley. And so Lot chooses that beautiful garden area, garden spot. Well, here we are a few chapters later. And we find that even though Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area and the Jordan Valley were beautiful and prosperous, that they are now under judgment. Why? Why is Sodom and Gomorrah coming under judgment? Well, chapter 13, just a couple of verses after Lot chooses his place, it tells us, gives us a little hint. It says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, it's important that we understand the sin of Sodom. Now surely that should cause us to squirm a little bit because we know what, uh, what Sodom is known for. It bears the name today. Some things are better left unsaid. But there are sins beneath the sins. Uh, Jude 7 does tell us that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, which is a euphemism for homosexual practice. But Ezekiel gives us a little bit more background to what's going on. In Ezekiel 16, it tells us, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, 
and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Well, this goes along with what we know about the cities in the Jordan Valley from Genesis 13. It was a beautiful and it was a prosperous area. However, instead of giving thanks to God for the wonderful gifts that they had and the lovely place where they lived, the people grew prideful in their luxury. They had excess food, they they had prosperous ease, as it says there, and they soon began to turn a deaf ear to the needs of the poor. They became haughty and arrogant to the point where they threw off all accountability and felt that they could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, to whomever they wanted. They oppressed people. They violated people. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 19 as the visitors arrive in the city. The men of Sodom, Calvin says, did not fall at once into such execrable wickedness. But in the beginning, luxury from the fullness of bread prevailed, and afterwards pride and cruelty followed. At length, when they were given up to a reprobate mind, they were also driven headlong into brutal lusts. Therefore, if we dread this extreme of inordinate passion, let us cultivate temperance and frugality, and let us always fear, lest a superfluity of food, an excess of food, should impel us to luxury, lest our minds should be inflicted with pride on account of our wealth, and lest delicacies should tempt us to give the reins to our lusts. What Calvin's saying there, and what the uh, people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the Jordan Valley experienced was the downward spiral of sin. You can see it illustrated in Romans chapter 1, where people throw off the Lord, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and pretty soon God has given them over to all kinds of impurity, and particularly lust. In our lives, small sins that seem harmless, socially acceptable, if they are unchecked, will ultimately drag you down to places you never thought that you would consent to go. Such was the case of Sodom and the surrounding cities, and it's been repeated throughout history. Sin is a downward spiral. We think we can play with it, but it leads to destruction. But look what what the Lord says in verse 20 of chapter 18. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, note that, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. He says here that their sin was very grave. The word grave there is actually the word for glory. Uh, the Hebrew word kavod, which means, which means heavy, weighty. And it's translated here grave. God is kavod. He is weighty. He's important. He's not trivial. He's not small or insignificant. And that's how, why we translate it. God is glorious. Here it's talking about sin. Sin is, this sin that they were engaged in was not a small sin. It was no trifling matter. It was a heavy, grave, weighty offense against God. And that's what 
God is saying here about Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. And there's an outcry. He uses the word outcry twice. The cry was great. See, the wicked promise themselves impunity. They think they can get away with whatever they're getting away with. They conceal their evils that nobody sees what they've done, what we've done, what you and I have done. We think it's just a small thing and nobody takes account of it. Yet, our sins will necessarily sound aloud in the ears of God. God hears, God knows, God sees. Even the things that we think are buried in the past, they are presented before the judgment seat of God. And they demand accounting for, even if there's no one else around to accuse. God scrutinizes each one of us, not only our actions, but our words, our thoughts, even the intentions of our hearts, the Bible tells us. They are all laid bare before the all-knowing Lord. God sees, God knows. But notice the patience of the Lord. You know, they have fallen way into some very severe sin, but they go on in doing it as if nothing, they were never going to be held accountable for that. Even while God is uh, talking to Abraham, they're sinning. When the men go down, they're trying to sin as the angels appear there in Sodom. They think that because no one has held them to account at this point that they're getting away with it and they can do what they want. All the while, even though God is being patient with them and God is saying, I'm going to go down and see for myself and see what's going on there. Even at that moment, see, they think nothing's going to happen. and They're happily going along in their sin. But then, bam, all of a sudden, God's judgment comes. He's patient, but even though they think nothing's happening, it's just God being patient. One day they are going to be called to an account. And Genesis chapter 19 is that day. They think it's, they're going to be without... Uh, they're going to be... Uh, not held accountable, and they can go on in their sin, but then the end comes. We never know. We never know. You know, some people say, well, you know, I'll get, make things right with God later on. I want to do what I want to now. Well, you don't know when that day is, when the Lord will call you to account. Second Peter 3 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We see why Sodom and Gomorrah are under judgment. The next question we need to ask ourselves is, why does God tell Abraham about it? There are at least, well, there's a two-part reason, and these two parts hang together. So Sodom and Gomorrah, under judgment, why does he need to share it with Abraham? Well, first of all, he says, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that, and this is the first part, 
Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So the first part of God's reasoning here has to do with God's purposes for Abraham and his posterity. Abraham will be a great nation through which all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Through Abraham, God is bringing salvation to people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Through Abraham, human beings are being saved from the judgment that will come upon sin. Paul calls this promise, uh, this promise the gospel, as we noted earlier, Galatians 3.8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So through Abraham, Christ enters the world, basically, and the gospel comes. He is the seed of Abraham. So God works through Abraham and his offspring to bring a blessing to all the, all the world. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be in heaven. They will be saved from the judgment that's coming. And then, okay, that's the first part. Okay? He's, he's, Abraham is being set apart to be a blessing to the nations. Then he says, verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. How can the Lord bring his promises to Abraham? Well, if he's going to become a great nation, he's got to uh, have, a ch- have a child, which he's going to do in just a couple of chapters. And he's going to have to have children, and they're going to have to have children, so forth and so on. As we see, that's exactly what happened. And they are going to have to Teach their children. Command their children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Well, it makes sense. If we don't hand the faith down to the next generation, then it's not going to spread through the world. I've heard people say the gospel is only one generation away from being extinct. Now, thankfully, God is sovereign and God works through in, in and through people to make sure that there is a remnant, there are people who are faithful to him. He does that. But God has called us. You know, what a perfect passage on the Sunday when we're baptizing a child and reminding ourselves of these covenant promises that God's made to Abraham and, and our part in that as, as people of the covenant to pass that faith down to our children. And so why is God making this particular argument? So, okay, saying, look, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations and, uh, and I've chosen you out. So you can teach your children and pass down this faith in the Lord to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Uh, I want you to see, Abraham, because you have this position and this status, I want you to see what happens to people who reject the Lord and his ways. Look at Sodom and teach your children so that they will be rescued from this fate and they can rescue others from this fate. It's a warning to Abraham. It's a warning to Abraham and to us as well. Throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah are used as examples of those who receive judgment from God. In fact, Israel itself is going to, God's going to come to Israel and say, Sodom was better than you are. You know, and look what they got. And you need to repent and turn to the, return to the Lord. Time and time again, over half the references in Scripture are warnings of coming judgment, Sodom being used 
as the example. We all need to take that to heart, that there is a day of judgment. And God is sending us warnings like he sent Abraham. We need to heed the warnings, understand that there is judgment, and not just ignore that. Pilgrim's Progress. Hopefully everybody's read it. If not, what a great summer read. Go pick you up a copy. You can actually get it free, I think, uh, uh, on your iPhone or iPad. But part of that, right at the very beginning, we have a fellow who is in distress. He's going to become called Christian, but he hasn't gotten there yet. But this fellow, it tells us, He was reading a book, greatly distressed in his mind, and as he read, he burst out, as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? I saw that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still because he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asked, Why are you crying? And the man answered, Sir... I perceived by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Not willing to die, not able to stand in judgment. And Evangelist says, well, you know, life's difficult. It's not such a bad thing to die. It's all kinds of evils in life. And the man said, because I fear that this burden that is on my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And, sir, if I am not fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. And Evangelist says, Well, if this is your condition, why are you standing here? Why are you you standing around? And he answered, Because I know not where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. The man read it, and looking at Evangelist, very carefully said, Whither must I fly? That is the question, isn't it? We hear of judgment, we've received the warnings of Scripture. Where do we go? Where do we fly from the wrath to come? We, like Abraham, hear these warnings. Are you affected by it yourself? Do you ask the question, where can I fly from the wrath to come? And do you know the answer to that question? There are lots of answers proposed in our world today. Well, be a good person, and and God will uh, show you favor. That's wrong. That's wrong, because you're a sinner, and and you're not holy. You, You cannot be acceptable based on your works before a holy God. That will not work. Some people say it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you really believe it. They're all just different paths up the same mountain. They all reach the top. Untrue. Untrue. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. It's okay. It's not okay for the people who are wrong. But you've got to come to that place where you realize we don't, relativism is not true. That's what's being promoted in our world today. That, you know, What's true for you may not be true for me. That's ridiculous. You know, relativists say uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, that is an absolute truth statement. So you've negated already the position that you have. 
There is no absolute truth. Well, that's an absolute truth statement. So relativism is illogical. And you and I can sit here and argue about the color of the sky. We can say, well, it's blue or green. Well, it's one or the other. It's not both. You know, there's a, there's, there's a right way and a wrong way. There is a right answer to this question, and it's Jesus Christ. Abraham interceded for Lot and his wife and two daughters. Four people were saved. Maybe that's why he stopped at ten, I don't know, in his requests for mercy. But even his wife turned back halfway out. and So only three were actually saved in Sodom. You and I must have someone to intercede for us, to stand in the gap for us, to be a mediator for us. And of course that person is Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. We talk about, in fact we talked about this on Wednesday night at our uh, theology uh, class. We talked about the offices of Christ, or at least R.C. Sproul talked and we listened. Uh, Prophet, priest, and king. That's what the offices of Christ does. As a prophet, and a prophet was a mouthpiece for God. So prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, people like Isaiah. They had a message from God that God gave them and they were to deliver it to the people. So a prophet represents God to the people. He faced the people and he made proclamations. A priest did not face the people. He faced God and he represented the people to God. He brought the sacrifices to God. He, he interceded for that. In this office of high priest, that's what we're talking about today. We need Christ to represent for us, before, the, before God, before the Father. As our great high priest, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. He, he was the sacrifice for sin that he brought to God so that our sins would be uh, cleansed, atoned for, and that we could be declared righteous like, by faith like Abraham was. And he continues to intercede for us. The scripture tells us, Isaiah 53, I've just given you a barrage. I know we've got to finish here. Isaiah 53 tells us about the Messiah. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 7 he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9. Christ has entered in, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then he goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If we are in Christ, connected to Christ, trusting in Christ, he intercedes for us. He is the mediator between God and man. The, the relationship that is broken through our sin, the judgment that comes upon us, fell upon him. He bore it on the cross so that we don't have to stand in judgment anymore. He bore it on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because 
Up until that time, he had known nothing but perfect fellowship with the Father. They're, they're part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living together eternally, together, in perfect harmony. And here at this one place, the perfect man who didn't deserve this, bored on our behalf. God's wrath was poured out upon him for the sins of his people. And he bore it. And that's why he was crying out, Why have you forsaken me? He knew why he had been forsaken. He's quoting Psalm 22. But then he says, It is finished. It's an accounting term. Paid in full. Christ paid it. And then he could say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Because his work was done. He had completed all righteousness. He had done He had never broken the law, he had never sinned, and he accomplished perfectly the mission that God the Father had sent him on. And therefore, uh, Christ's sacrifice was, was accepted, and it was proven by the Lord raising him from the dead, and him ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. Put your trust in Christ today. Flee from the judgment to come. And there's only one place to flee, to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.